Good, I'd like to ask for your attention to a precious commodity. So I would like to indulge that attention with some reflections on, uh, I believe, a pertinent topic for the stage we're in at our retreat, uh, thoughts on body. Various uh, assembled thoughts on body and our embodied experience. Easy starting point is easy enough. We're, there are loads of bodies in here. Um, older bodies and younger bodies and uh, various genders. Uh, healthier and less healthier bodies probably. Blonde bodies, bald bodies, brown bodies, red bodies. All kinds of bodies. And body is a huge thing in our experience and yet if you look, for example, at Western philosophy, it is shocking how little of Western philosophy actually deals with body. Yeah. 3,000 years of Western thinking about the mind and the world and the universe, and remarkably little is said about body. Even the fellow John quoted this morning, you know, the fellow who didn't have problems with the uh, mind and uh, didn't have problems with the body, but he had problems with the neck, you know, which I find funny. Um, but uh, at the second glance, <coughs> this fellow clearly identifies the mind with the brain, you know, which already is a slight uh, prejudice, I would say. Um, once you know that you have at least as many nerve cells in your belly as you have in your brain, uh, you might question the notion that your mind really is in your brain. In fact, most Asian traditions, where, whether you go to Tibet or to India or to Thailand, when you speak of the mind, people point <laughs> to their heart area. You know? So the identification of mind with a particular organ called brain is a very uh, Western and, I would say, very recent notion. So the mind-body issue is not just a neck-brain-rest-of-the-body issue. Bodies occupy a large space in our uh, perception of us, ourselves, and of the world. We are quite peculiar about bodies. It's not that we are particularly liberal about bodies. We have strong feelings about bodies, particularly about our own. Um, we establish ownership. Most of us think of ourselves in terms of self, and one major foundation for that self-notion is body. Yeah. I'm kind of at the receiving end of my experiences. I'm the kind of core of my, the protagonist sitting somewhere in this body. If I have to go to the loo, none of you can do that for me. You know, so it's very clear. You know, this is this body, you know, which really counts and which is the, the the subtle hub of world as it appears to me. And there's other bodies. Um, depending on how you're keyed into this, this is delightful. You know, you feel enveloped by a crowd of benevolent other bodies, and you are allowed to be part of this world because there's so many others that seem to be doing the same thing as you're doing and bodies are reassuring yeah if they're sweating and itching and sneezing and projecting bacteria out then you know you may have different feelings about bodies you think they're basically a risk yeah bodies are you know festering with bacteria and you, they put your meditation they put your life in danger yeah? so our perspective on bodies uh, can be quite varied. We are profoundly sensate and we forget. We forget to what extent this is the case. We forget how early that starts. Most of our senses, maybe with the exception of the optical sense, are pretty much intact and fully functional by the time we are born. Did you know that? Marie Claire's baby, sitting with us on this retreat in her seven months, 
will probably be suckling its thumb already for four months. Yeah? Tactile system is the most complete when we get born. Self-stimulation is very important already prenatally. Children develop via their skin and via pressure of the uterine and amniotic fluid quite distinct sensate tones, you know, quite highly sensitized. Uh, we don't consciously recall this, but our bodies do recall this. Strangely enough, and this is maybe exemplary in Western philosophy, the identification of the me construct is very prefrontal. You know, it's kind of the, that's where the, the bit they're most identified with, what's going on in my prefrontal cortex. That's reasonably young you know, compared to the four billion years that have gone into the development of my cells. And I capitalize on an evolutionary chain that is a lot older than my little prefrontal cortex, which is a barely around for 150,000 years. So we're quite strange when it actually comes to body. Uh, we know a lot more than we admit to know. We have memories that are not cognitive or conceptual. We have memories that are tonal, that kind of reverberate in all of our cells. Memories that are much older than our capacity to recall things. And um, it will not be of a surprise that Buddhist meditation practices rate the experience of body as central. Every meditative tradition has understood that the body is absolutely central for meditative practice. We cannot meditate without this body. This comes as a surprise because our educational system and our, our self-constructs often don't reflect that accurately. Um, if you look at your own worries and your own fantasies, uh, some of them will be about the body or other people's bodies or your own, but most of our worries and fantasies are actually about other things, relationship, possessions, things that have not directly to do with our embodied nature. If you look at the desire structure, Buddhist teachings on desire, on tanha, and bear with me for a moment if I do a footnote on tanha here, desire is not just the, the pleasure, the, the seeking of pleasure and gratification we have through sensory experience. That is one aspect. That's what the Western word desire generally uh, covers. But Buddhist teachings uh, have a broader notion of desire. So beside the wish for uh, pleasing experiences or intense experiences or adventurous experiences we can make with our bodies, there are all kinds of other objects of desire. The next one, not karma tanha, Karma with a long A, yeah. different. It's important to make these little distinctions. Yeah. There is kama with a short A, has meaning action, and there is kama meaning sensuality. Now these two are not totally disconnected. There is a profound connection between these two, but for this case, we're talking about kama, the experience of sensuality, objects of sensuality, and the desire for sensual experiences. So all this is lumped together under the term karma. So karma tanha, the desire to make experiences, to have experiences, to enjoy experiences, is very obvious to most of us. We're very good at this. Children are very good at this early on. You know? Learning to stimulate one's ourselves is a powerful experience. First we smile when somebody rattles then we learn to hold the rattle ourselves. Then we learn that if we move the rattle, it makes the sound that gives us good feelings. And this is all an empowering experience to go through this. Not just get the rattle sound, but actually produce the rattle sound is another kick. And then later it's two rattles and then it's... <laughs> and so forth. So the second type of desire is more subtle. It's about bhavatanha refers to abstract qualities of experience, things that are not sensory in nature, things like love or power or control or recognition. Yeah. These are, as you can easily see, highly craved objects of desire 
and yet they're not immediately sensory. Money is not really a sensory experience. Love is not really a sensory experience. Power is not really a sensory experience. And yet security is not, control is not. Many of us invest a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of thought and effort into procuring these things for us or for other people. So in Buddhist teaching, they are also objects of desire. And when we speak of desire, we're not just speaking of the wish to sink our little choppers into a hamburger. We also speak of the wish to create safety for us and our loved ones. It's not immoral. We're not speaking of morals here. And the third type of desire is even uh, further away from Western notions of generally connected with desire. It's the wish to get rid of something. It's the wish that something stop. The wish that something be shot to the moon. The wish to get, to lose something. Shed weight. Stop him from sneezing. Take him out of this hole. He's dangerous to my practice. Yeah? It's not aversion. This is different. The desire to get rid of something is always highly specific. Desire is always specific. If I love cucumbers, I don't necessarily love carrots. My desire for cucumbers doesn't automatically jump over to carrots. Yeah. If I am averse, if the mind is in a state of aversion, that aversion tends to jump from one thing to the next. It's not object-specific. Desire is object-specific. In this case, the desire to get rid of something is highly specific. It's not... Uh, a kind of Scotty beam me up, this is a horrible planet sort of feeling, but it's a highly specific wish that some person be gone, some state I experience stop, or some particular facet of my experience be different or be taken away from me. So desire is something quite powerful, and these bodies are desire bodies. So our bodies produce such desires. We learn to stimulate. We, in fact, need bodily stimulation to grow. We differentiate our senses by appropriate stimulation. If we do not get that appropriate stimulation, uh, we're deprived. And that is a, a big distinction. If I deprive myself of a wish, I tend to grow stronger through either missing that or renouncing that. If I try to deprive myself of a need, I, there's something that atrophies. There's something that gets weakened. At best, it gets retarded. At worst, something withers or dwindles. That is an important one for, for Buddhist practitioners. We need to learn to distinguish need and wish, or need and greed, if you want to be more... Uh, Captive. Bodies produce needs and they produce wishes. So we need to figure out where the line is. That's one of the practitioner's tasks. Nobody can do that for you. There's plenty of people trying, trying to do that for you. Uh, generally, I would recommend the more confident they are to tell you what you need and what you don't need, the more prudent you should be with them. Uh, irrespective of whether they wear uniforms, uh, behave motherly, resolute, or come from uh, on high as a sort of spiritual message. So better be careful with people who tell you what you need and what you don't need. Body produces needs and um, also grows with needs. By the time our senses are developed and we're adult, uh, generally we not just have learned to differentiate our senses, we not just have learned what's good for us, we, we also have a habit of seeking gratification. What was developmentally necessary is no longer developmentally necessary. Uh, and let has, has, has left us with a habit. And that habit then continues to organize much of our body experience. So we spend a lot of time grooming bodies, prettifying bodies, trying to keep bodies healthy. And we're quite, if you look at our advertisements, which is always a very good uh, indicative 
way of finding out what a society is about. Look at what they advertise. Then you see that bodies are important. Particularly youthful bodies, healthy bodies, beautiful bodies, uh, bodies that wear expensive clothes, that use expensive equipment. Such bodies are obviously very prominent in advertisement. But if you look at how we actually relate to our own body, you notice a strange discrepancy. Well, it's not difficult to see that we are a sensuous culture. We often actually don't give much attention to the sensate nature of the body where it is not overtly sensuous or where it is not overtly painful. Most of us stay with our attention with the body when the body experiences pleasure or agreeable things and we willy-nilly attend to the body when it feels pain or when it's when bits stop working or, or kind of misbehave as we may think. But in between those two states, the experience of pleasure and agreeableness in the body and the experience of pain, you, you will probably find that most of the time you find it quite difficult to actually stay with ordinary, reasonably neutral um, bodily experiences. Most of us would probably spend time being taken out of our immediate bodily experience for the sake of some idea to pursue, for some plan, for some memory to be rehashed. We're not actually very good at staying in our bodies. And this is becoming very obvious when we practice <coughs> Kaya Nupassana, the contemplations of body, as, uh, as we are encouraged, as we're trying to convey to you that this is a central... Uh, mainstay of any introspective practice, we find somehow our, our attention going away to inane things just because they're a little bit more attractive than just me sitting here digesting my supper. Uh, the experience, of <coughs> somatic experience of me sitting here digesting my supper somehow doesn't cut it. Yeah? If I can think a little thought about something, even an unpleasant thought is more entertaining than just me sitting here with a nicely full belly and gentle gurgling digestive noises. This is somehow not attractive enough to rivet my attention. Yeah? So we all are probably aware of this, that it is not easy to stay with the embodied present moment. And it's a little theory is necessary here. Um, John has alluded to it already, um, referring to his friend Pascal, whom he likes to quote, and who is a, a very insightful man. Unfortunately, he died very early. And uh, um, a look at his pensée, at his uh, thoughts or reflections is, is definitely worth it, even though some of it is polemical, trying to find the Jesuits, you know, to... Uh, who, who were just uh, a few houses down the lane from where he lived and who were the great competitors in his time for his particular brand of uh, Catholicism. Nevertheless, he was very insightful and he had understood some about, something about our fundamental unease at being enough to ourselves, yeah? at being content with the experience of that present moment. That present moment is often not spectacular, particularly the embodied present moment is not so spectacular, and how difficult we find to actually be with us, be with us here sitting. Now, why is this important? One simple reason. If we are experiencing our body, we always have an anchor in the present tense. You never get yesterday's knee pains. You never get tomorrow's migraine. Yeah? Whenever you are with the body, you are automatically present-centered because the only time you experience body is in the present tense. So without you doing any hard work, you couldn't say the same thing about thoughts. You know? While the thoughts are also 
occurring in the present moment. Usually you're not aware of the thoughts, you're aware of the content of the thought and the content of your thinking may never have happened because you were so deluded when it happened that you have completely distorted recall or it may never happen because your fantasies about what might take place will never actually happen. Or it may have happened exactly as recall, but it was 30 years ago, you know, and much water has flown beneath the bridge since. So when you are with thought, you have no guarantee that you are actually in the present. In fact, thought is famous for taking you away from the present. It's one of the classic ways how we distance ourselves from a present experience by thinking about something else. It's not called reflection, it's called dissociation. It has a bad name, for good reasons. Legitimate strategy to get out of overwhelming pain as a habit, rather than as a topical intervention technique, as a habit, it's really bad news. People who are not really here, when their bodies are here, are um, not very nice. They don't take care. They're not very powerful. They're not really sensate. They, um, they can make things very unsafe. And they're not really participating in the game. They're not really on the ball. They're in some other world, some happy or unhappy, sometimes parallel dimension, where you don't really reach them. So dissociated people are dangerous to have around, basically. But we all do this to some extent. Sometimes we do it because what we experience is too painful. That's what the thing is for initially. You know, little, little babies who are highly sensitive and can be easily overwhelmed and have no control over their environment. So Psyche has organized it in such a way that they can split off if things become too painful. Yeah. So the body gets hurt, but the mind doesn't register that hurt because it goes away. Now, if you make a habit out of this, <clears throat> you're in trouble because your body continually feels safer than it actually is. Feels less needs than it actually has. Uh, and you're living in a sort of mentalized universe where you see and observe everything, but you actually participate in very few things. And even the things you participate in are rather diminished. The flavors aren't there. The pleasure isn't there. The happiness isn't there. The contentment isn't there. The compassion isn't there. Uh, and spiritually, dissociation is a real drawback because it's um, not just psychologically insalubrious, it's also a catastrophe. You cannot transcend things you have not actually arrived at. You, know? you cannot really go beyond something where you haven't even arrived at. To go beyond something, and that's what Buddhist teachings tries to en uh, encourage you to <laughs> go up to, touch into, and go beyond. That's how we learn. And that only is possible when we're there. So if we're not here, then uh, we're not even capable of leaving things behind or understanding things in a proper, you know, the English word actually standing under something says it. We can't understand things completely if we're not arriving at these things. So that's why disembodiment, another word for dissociation, is really a bad thing psychologically unhealthy and spiritually very ineffective and socially not very agreeable if the people who you live with are just not are never there where you are you know, or where their bodies are so we have strategies in being with body one strategy is desire that makes bodies feel good um, we're slightly peculiar you know we have a lot of focus for our desire we're very obsessed with our face for example you know we seem to credit particular parts of our body to be particularly significant if we go and make past photos we never hold up our armpits or so we generally <laughs> hold up our faces uh, <clears throat> which you know is weird i mean i'm sure we could dis distinguish each other from an intimate recognition of differences in armpits as well as we could do that with faces but as it as it seems to work you know homo sapiens sapiens has basically honed in on faces we have brain centers that are particularly dedicated to the recognition of face 
and face recognition. You know? This is learned. You know? Babies operate more by smell. You can recognize a mother's breast by a few days. And a few days later, they can recognize uh, suckling mothers and other women suckling and non-suckling women. They can distinguish that within two weeks. It's not bad, is it? Uh, just by the smell. But later, faces are really big. In fact, even very early on, faces are big. If you show babies all kinds of things, circles or triangles or faces, they will always go for the faces. Yeah? They really love that. Quite clearly preferable. So it's fairly deep-seated. And we have developed parts of our brain to actually recognize not just faces, but also recognize what's going on in those faces, whether these faces show things like disgust or threat or fear. Very good. Very early on, very fast, recognizing what other people exude in terms of a vibe. So bodies are not just bodies. We are infatuated with some parts a lot more than with other parts. Rarely fall in love with a renal cortex or so. Generally, um, you, fall, you fall for surface experiences. You know? Buddhist teachings is very sober. It's just, you know, skin, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, and teeth. That's what you fall for. That's what you get. You, know? you don't get the other side of the epidermis. You get the top side of the epidermis. <laughs> yeah. Bodies are uh, spoken of in Buddhist teaching a lot. But before I go there, let me uh, say more. Why is body such an important thing in, in developing meditation? Every big culture has understood that somehow body and mind have a connection. Many cultures have understood that this connection has something to do with breath. Yeah? The pneuma of the Greeks, uh, the chi of the... Chinese and the key of the Japanese have something to do with that energy. The prana or the pana, as in anapanasati, uh, is the Indian contribution to that. The spiritus, you know, all these traditions have somehow understood that breath connects mind and body. So we find meditation on breath fairly or squarely in the first segment of the Satipatthana Sutta of the fourfold uh, establishing of mindfulness, we find sat, we find anapanasiti, mindfulness of breathing, as part of the body segment. That body segment, by the way, uh, has is the is the largest chunk, as John already mentioned. Uh, it's quite obvious to anybody reading these old teachings that body is a prime route for liberating practices. There's a whole sutta dedicated to the development of mindfulness of body. And mindfulness of body, even in the sutta, which isn't just about the body, takes the largest chunk. So there's four, uh, actually six, uh, departments, um, three of which we, take, we talk generally quite a bit about, and three of them we tend to neglect. The first three are mindfulness of posture. We do a lot of this. Uh, then we have... Uh, the segment on Sampajanya, um, clear comprehension of what the body does. There are competing definitions of that term, uh, which I won't go into tonight, but one major definition of the term Sampajanya speaks that we are bodily aware in whatever posture, in whatever movement this body is. And this is a foundation of meditative exercise. Uh, being embodied, unlike Mr. Duffy, uh, which John quoted this morning, who lives a short distance from his own body. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who hasn't been there? We all have probably lived for extended periods of time at the short or even further distance from our own bodies. Who hasn't run up a flight of stairs uh, completely uh, far away from his own body, just preoccupied with what is ever at the end of that flight of stairs? You know, me last night stumbling over my stairs in the dark, with a cup of almond milk in my hand, believing I could manage to walk through a stair I really don't know in a house that is dark, and paying the price 
<laughs> bruise on my shin, <clears throat> um, loss of half of my cup of almond milk, and slightly sheepish feeling of probably having scared Christina next door. So, so who hasn't been at the place where he was ahead with his intentions or even with his attention uh, of his body? Yeah. The angle generally of such people is slightly forward and they need to use their feet to keep up with their brains <laughs> that are moving slightly ahead of them. We have this wonderful world in German called uh, Kopfhusler, which is a cephalopod, technically. This is a, a creature that has only a brain and feet. And it's a, it's a logical term, and some of you may know, you know, squids are part of this group of people. So they have basically a brain and a head, and then they have feet. You know? But the cephalopod is also uh, a good term for an intellectual, generally. And you don't need to be a highly decorated academic. You, you can just be an ordinary scattered-brained intellectual, always ahead of himself or herself, and a poor body with little feet trying to catch up with that imbalanced head inflicts upon the general posture in the world. So it's those people who have to run always to keep up with themselves. So body is referred to as an anchor in Buddhist understanding. Body is referred to as a profound teaching on impermanence, but also on gratification. And body is also referred to as a tool to be tra training ourselves in sensitivity. See, one of the aspects of mind is, uh, uh, without getting too technical about it, it's fu a fundamental, uh, a basal sensitivity. That's one of the components of our mental functioning. We are sensitive creatures. We can receive things and we can respond to these things. And our sensitivity is very much geared to efficiency. So our life currently doesn't really make us highly bodily aware. The things that make us bodily aware is generally illness, peer group pressure, symptoms of aging, um, it's the malfunctioning of body that makes us aware of the needs of body. As long as we don't feel the body's needs clearly, we just think, well, this is normal. Yeah. Buddhist teaching calls that the intoxication with youth, health and strength. Yeah. We'll be sorted. As long as we're young and healthy and strong, and some of us never are young, healthy and strong, maybe young, but healthy and strong, not everybody is healthy and strong. But as long as we are, we tend to think this is going to continue that way. We know it's not, and yet we behave as if it is. We're quite capable of having a sort of reflective knowledge that this is not probably going to continue that way, and yet our behavior doesn't really bear out that reflective awareness. We just live as if we would live forever. Uh, we treat our bodies as if we didn't really uh, feel vulnerabilities. And we assume that our perspective will, will remain the same. And then something happens. Generally, we, we get ill. As little children, we get ill and we are a little more serious. Have you ever noticed children <laughs> being a little more serious after a three-week angina or so, or some severe cold? I remember how serious this was when I was ill. I remember being in bed and feeling small and feeling being taken out of my life, not being able to play or not being able to go to school or not being able to do the things I thought life was about. Suddenly I was there and not functioning. And that was a powerful message. So the body, as an object of meditation, we're suggested to approach via posture and its orientation in space, via its breathing function, and via um, clear comprehension of the body's movements and functions in space during non-formal types of activity, yeah? when we don't actually sit or stand or walk in meditation. Then we have 
other, pra other practices connected with the body, which one of them is the contemplation of elements. This is quite fascinating. It's a very short snippet in the Satipatthana teaching on that we basically experience ourselves in terms of elements. These are not exterior elements, these are sensory qualities. Fire, warmth, coloricity, water, cohesion, that which is fluid, coherent, that's the big physical uh, quality, co cohesiveness, um, motility, air, vibration, that's the air, the air element, and earth, extension, that's the first physical element, and solidity, resistance, that which is hard. Now these are not objective elements as we have in the molecular table, but these are elements of sensory quality. We can all feel that inside the body and outside the body. And we are encouraged to become aware of these elements and to think of the body in terms of these elements. Now, most of the time we think of the body not in terms of elements, but we think in the bo of the body in terms of its uh, performance, of its erotic market value, of its degree of functionality, of its size. We think of the body of its appearance, and particularly we think of the body as me being me. You know? I'm my body. When I hit my thumb, it hurts me, it doesn't hurt you. You may be sympathetic to my experience, you may be even compassionate, you may even freak back a little bit when I do it, but basically it's this body which hurts. But there are bits that aren't so clear. You know? If this is the body, am I going to lose the body if I clip off my fingernails? You know, am I going to lose my body in that process? Is this me there in the sink? No, it's not. The idea that this body is me is a strange idea. And yet, this body has a powerful experience, uh, effect on my experience of myself. Our attentional focus is very fixated on bodies. You go into a room and you, what you see is bodies. You, know? you see people. You don't see their heart values. You don't see their mental capacities. You don't see... Uh, their intrinsic generosity. You see bodies, and your attention immediately fixates on bodies. Buddhist teaching also has <coughs> ways of talking about the body. In fact, Buddhists have a bad reputation. Uh, much of last century, or at least the first part of last century's reviews on Buddhist attitudes and body come to the conclusion that Buddhists are really down on bodies. The body is the seat of all evil. The body is to be transcended and left behind. Thank God, when we're done with these bodies, we're free. Bodies are, uh, you know, um, all kinds of unappetizing descriptions of bodies. Uh, trouble with nine orifices, so oozing, made up of components which are unattractive and impure. Uh, bodies are only under the influence of desire perceived to be beautiful. So there's a lot of, definitely some of that stuff you can find in the, in the old texts. Uh, but I do think there's other forms of discourses about body in the Buddhist uh, suttas. I'd like to fish out a few of them. One of them clearly is that the body is constituted by differing organs. And we are, on a first level, encouraged to contemplate both the dependency we have on the function of these organs and the fact that this body is made up. And most of these components are not to us intrinsically attractive. Even a beautiful blonde hair somehow looks very different if we find it in our soup. Yeah? Yeah. Then bodies are... We are encouraged to look at bodies in terms of what they contain. So we are encouraged, one aspect of the Satipatthana Sutta encourages us to uh, acknowledge that this body is made up of component parts. Hair, varying organs, 
bones, excrement, all kinds of things. These are, if we name them, they're not attractive to us. We, we have a tendency to be a little bit squeamish about this. Uh, with all our body obsession, we're actually quite biased to certain parts of the body and very much biased to not talk, not even mention other parts of the body or other functions of the body. Buddhist teachings are quite blunt about this. They make us contemplate things like oil of the joints or mucuses or uh, sinews. They make us clear that this body, if we look at it in a way that this body is composed of organs and bits and pieces, then none of these bits and pieces is intrinsically attractive. We feel unease at looking at bodies in this way. We like to look at bodies in a sort of coherent... We like to wrap up bodies in our perceptions. As soon as we start deconstructing the notion of body, first the notion this being my body and then the notion of body being uh, a generic term for something that is constituted by a variety of differing textures and organs and... Uh, liquids that is generally not pleasant to us and that is one of the purposes of this particular exercise we are encouraged to become more sober in our attitudes to body the gratification seeking part which we are uh, honing in on in much of our relationship to body uh, the beauty seeking part is challenged with this deconstruction model so one part of buddhist discourse on body is about the unattractiveness in it an interesting simile says that just as a man who would have a bag with seeds open at both ends, opens this bag and looks into this bag and sees, you know, this is rice, this is uh, beans, this is mung beans, this is paddy. And in the same way, we are encouraged to look at our body. Now that bag is a slightly thing, I have only recently completely believed to have completely understood what is meant with that bag, because it's spoken of that this bag is open at both ends. And I've, I've always been finding it difficult to imagine a bag that is open at both ends, because most of the time the bags I am familiar with, they're open at one end, and it's, the, it's precisely the kick of a bag that it's not open at the other <laughs> end. But I've been convinced that this bag is a, uh, is, is, a, is a utensil that is used for sowing. Yeah? So you have a big opening for the seeds to go in uh, and then you have a small opening when you're on the field out of which the seeds come, which you actually spread into the furrow. Uh, that is the most convincing I've ever heard of this and it makes sense. The analogy obviously is not too far from our own bodies. Yeah? This is a huge digestive tube which has a big end, yeah? which we're highly identified psychologically. Much of our, uh, if you look uh, how much oral gratification we get, yeah? eating, drinking, talking, smoking, kissing, everything goes here. Yeah? From very early on, kids up to school days still explore things by putting them in the mouth using the mucuses of the mouth to explore. Babies, obviously, they do that straight away. Later on, we generally put off a little bit of that. People inflict notions of hygiene on us and uh, dampen our exploratory enthusiasm <laughs> with the mucuses of the mouth. And suddenly, by the time you go to school, you know, you're kind of relegated to chewing a little bit at the end of your <laughs> pencil or so. Even that will be taken away from you in the due course. But still, you, you know, there's some atavisms continue of that nature. And if you look at how much, how social important, how socially important oral and shared oral gratification is, it's quite stark, isn't it? This plays, this continues to play a huge role in our life. So, uh, at the other end is uh, a little less mentionable, yeah? but uh, we're all familiar uh, uh, with the, the, the second end of the digestive tube. And I think the image is not bad. If you look at the notion suggested, looking at the differing types of grain in that bag, there's nothing intrinsically disgusting about differing types of grain. You know? We're not asked to be disgusted by our bodies. 
We're asked to become sober by our bodies. Um, the discourse on Buddhist, uh, Buddhist discourse on bodies has other aspects as well. One other aspect is quite sober and neutral. While we, with the first type of discourse, we're clearly brought to acknowledge the unattractive nature of things in that body. Most of these things, in you, if you have them out, they're basically not particularly attractive to us. Yeah? If you're a pathologist, you might think, you know, this is a beautiful, particularly beautiful spleen. Yeah? But for most of us, uh, a spleen is not something we would intrinsically find attractive. Yeah? And the idea of acknowledging the intrinsic unattractiveness of that is not to feel disgust for the body, it is to counteract desire and to counteract uh, perceptual besottedness with uh, a beauty that cannot really be sustained. Or as you so beautifully say in English, that is only skin deep. So this part of, the, of Buddhist discourse on body is clearly about acknowledging a part that doesn't gratify our wishes for beauty and desire um, and is nevertheless part of a reality. There's another part of discourse which is quite sober. When we are asked to become aware of the body, then this is not even there to incite incite us to acknowledge the unattractive nature. It's just to incite us to become more aware of what we actually know via the body. We know an awful lot via the body. Our senses tell us an awful lot more than we tend to admit. You know, our bodies are quite astute. In fact, our bodies are preoccupying our, our brain an awful lot. Most of, the thing would, most of what our brain actually does, its main function is not thinking as we might think as meditators when we struggle with our thinking minds. Most of what our brain actually does is modulating bodily uh, states. You know? It takes care of that body. It does that usually so without declaring. It doesn't say uh, temperature is dropping, blood sugar is dropping, do something, do something. It just gives us hunger. And I just kind of, I shiver a little bit, yeah? pull up my blanket. Uh, I do that quite easily. And then I get hungry. Yeah? Body doesn't tell me blood sugar levels are dropping now. I just get hungry. I just feel sort of slight appetite, something missing, and I head over to the fridge. Yeah? So that's what the brain does. And most of what the brain actually does is taking care of a body that moves through space. It seems to be the point where we need a brain when we start getting into mobility. Plants don't have brains. They're still sensitive, but they don't have brains. But things that move around are a lot more dangerous. They can be eaten on the way. They can get themselves into trouble. So it's clear that developmentally we need to start having a brain once we start moving. Almost everything that moves, anything that moves, starts having a brain. Maybe a small brain, you know, but a brain, nevertheless. So as soon as bodies start moving around, they need brains. And they start developing their senses in different ways. Buddhist meditation practice says, well, if you do move around, do move around mindfully. Do move around with awareness. Do move around with clear comprehension. Much can be learned about your differing states, your differing realms of bodily, of embodied experience. Yeah. We're encouraged to develop an embodied mind. That's a powerful term. The Buddha doesn't speak a psychological language, although he is very psychological in his attitude. But it, I have no doubt that the Buddha was very clear about the danger of dissociation. There is so much emphasis on anchoring attention and awareness in body and returning to body and present time that I have no doubt that he was very aware of this. So the second layer of Buddhist discourse in body just speaks of very matter-of-factly of bodily functions, of bodily performances, of bodily sensations. We know a lot about the world and the world of other people by listening to our own bodies. That discourse particularly makes us more sensitive 
it speaks of um, more awareness of what actually takes place in the body and to use that knowledge more consciously. So we become more refined in bodily awareness. Much of what some people seem to think is extrasensory is actually just a refinement of sensitive experience. And then finally we have another type of discourse on body which is a lot less known and this is where you have body that is actually the the culmination of an embodied mind. There is an uncanny use of analogies referring to the body when the Buddha speaks of deep samadhi states. Uh, John has mentioned something about metaphors and the there's a, a tendency to have visual metaphors for things that have to do with wisdom. So things that have to do with understanding. We speak of insight, of in, in investigation. We speak of seeing things. or Often the act of knowing will be identified with the act of seeing. But there's another uh, branch of meditative experience that has to do with this, the depth and the stillness of mind. And this stillness of mind is usually referred to as a, a gradual subsiding of preoccupation with the sensory nature of experience. And strangely enough, that gradual subsiding of the sensory nature of experience is exemplified in analogies with body. So we are told that the absorption experiences are an experience where the body is saturated, is pervaded with rapture, with fi pleasant feelings. So in some strange way, the most mentalized forms of experience, namely jhana, the absorption experiences, which are uh, defined by having a very, very subdued sensory tone left. You know, these experiences are described in four beautiful images and all of these images are not just bodily they're actually almost sensuous yeah. so the first jhana is described um, with some person going to a bath and the bath the soap is is loose and like a, a bathing person would pervade the, the loose soap and knead it into a, a ball of soap and make sure that this soap is gradually moistened and wet without oozing, without dripping. And in the same way as this lump of soap is pervaded with, with hu humidity and um, the wetness of the person kneading it, in the same way this body is suffused and completely pervaded with rapture and pleasant feelings. Not the mind, the body, very clear. A second jhana is described, again in a bodily, uh, uh, almost bodily manner. It says, as if a lake, the body experiences the pleasure of the stillness right into the last fiber, in the same way as if a mountain lake that has no exterior source, that has only an interior source, and the water, cool water, uh, uh, in India particularly a, an attractive concept, uh, maybe Western Mass, yeah, on days like this, probably also, but there may be days where this isn't particularly attractive. That the cool water coming from the inside of the lake pervading the complete lake, so that the lake was completely um, pervaded by that cool water coming from the uh, inside source of it. You know? So the, the, the happiness of the mind that comes from the inside, that doesn't come from sensory gratification, results in a feeling of profuse bodily pleasure and happiness that pervades the complete body. A third jhana is described in the same way. In all of these jhanas, the body is suffused and is full of pleasure and full of pleasant and happy feelings. The third image uses uh, lotuses that grow out of the mud and that are completely drenched with the water that surrounds them. Yeah. 
some of these plants go up to the surface and blossom. Uh, and this is the image of a plant that isn't at the surface yet, but it is completely saturated with the water that surrounds it. In the same way, the body is saturated with a pleasant uh, experience coming from the stillness of the mind. And the last image, similar. Again, this is about body. We're at a stage where we don't even mere experience plain and pleasure. Yeah? Fourth jhana, be, be aware of this. Yeah? Again, this is, is, is described as the body being suffused with pleasant experiences. In the same way uh, as if somebody who is covered with a white cloth from head to toe, um, the same way this person is covered from head to toe with a white cloth that the body is completely suffused with the pleasantness of the experience of the stillness of mind. This is quite amazing, isn't it? You have other notions that speak. Somebody who has a particular knack at meditative uh, skill and a capacity for deep samadhi states is referred to as a kaya-saki, one who is witnessing with the body. So there is a clear connection in several instances between deep experience of stillness and the body. So even at the moment when the body seems to be furthest away, the body is obviously the prime metaphor used for that deep experience of stillness. If somebody tells you that Buddhism is really down on bodies, <coughs> that Buddhists try not to get reborn and that means that they leave their earthly coils behind and finally become pure mind or something like that, do smile at them and gently point out that this is not the case. You know, there are differing discourses on body in these old texts. The interesting thing is that they're all correlated in some way. It makes sense that we renounce sensory pleasure to be able to acquire the stillness of mind. Yeah? The pleasure that comes from a stillness of mind has to go at the expense of our preoccupation with procuring sensory pleasure, pleasure for us. Yeah? This is the paradox and this is the challenge. This is what's counterintuitive. Counter We've learned as children to stimulate ourselves and it gives us good feelings when we stimulate ourselves. So gratification is a source of happiness. The Buddha never denied that. Very clear. The sense pleasures are manifold, enticing and variegated. Yeah. Quite clear that you can get a lot of sense pleasures out of bodily experience. At the same time, if you want the pleasure of a mind that is growing into stillness, you need to stop the pursuit of sensory gratification. Uh, that's the paradox. If we want the pleasure that comes from stillness of mind, we need to stop or at least diminish or pause for a while the preoccupation of the mind to seek for sensory gratification. That's why this is not very popular. Yeah? It's counterintuitive. It's very simple. If you want to have a mind that becomes more still, you need to be prepared to give up thinking about things that give you pleasant feelings. Let alone things that don't give you pleasant feelings. And that's not apparent immediately, that only in being willing to suspend that seeking attitude for sensory gratification, the mind has a chance to actually touch into its own sweetness touch into its own, the, the strength and the beauty of its own stillness. And that's why this is not quite easy. But if you find ways to actually, by pausing your seeking pursuits, and you find that there is a contentment and an increasing sense of happiness growing in the mind, then you will understand that image of the lake kind of being pervaded from within. It's the, it's the type of happiness that comes from your own mind, that is almost endemic. Yeah? It doesn't come from the fridge. Yeah? But if you want to find that happiness that comes from the mind, you have to leave the fridge, at least for a while. Yeah? 
And that's why this is not very popular, what you're doing. This is why this is a marginal pursuit. Good. Enough of body tonight. Thank you for your attention. Good. Uh, please um, stretch and do some walking practice.